So you could put this down as cycles of disaffection part two, but it has its own unique name because I'm, I'm, I'm entitling this the greatest casualty in the church. And obviously we know what that is. It has to do with relationships. The greatest casualty in the church has to do with relationships. So I want to continue to address relationship issues as it relates to the church and the healthiness of the church and the healthiness of any relationship, whether it be a marriage or two people in relationships or church members in relationship with each other as any kinds of relationship and the proximity of people to people in relationships. This is the greatest casualty of the church. When relationships are strong, the church is strong. When you were growing up and I was growing up, we used to hear a strong family makes a strong church. A strong church is a strong nation, is a strong community. That is the truth. Everything literally starts at home. If there's a breaking down in the home, it will translate itself out into the communities and into the church and into different areas. It's got to be strong at home first. Think about this. The first institution created by God was the family. In the beginning, in the garden, the first, listen, God created the trees and the plants and the birds and all that kind of stuff. But when it came to institution, the first institution created by God was the family. It holds the highest place still. It is the most significant thing that we can do. Have a strong family. A strong family produce strong kids, produce strong marriages, produce strong relationships, a healthy environment, a healthy community, healthy workplace, but it all starts with the family, the first institution created by God. I stumbled, I don't know that I stumbled into that, it was kind of a revelation that I was reading my Bible one day and just like, wait a minute, that's the first thing that God did. <laughs> After the phenomenon of this world and this earth and the mountains and the trees and the fish and all the ecosystem, man and woman, it's the establishment of relationships. So the greatest casualty as a result is, and the enemy would love to destroy the first thing that God created. It was so high in God's order that Satan chooses to attack this very one thing to destroy everything else downstream. It makes sense as a strategy. Not that I'm giving any credence to it, he's the devil. See what I'm saying? But if you really want to get at God, go mess with the very thing that he considered primary. The family from where all relationships develop and flow out of. And so as a consequence, the greatest casualty that we suffer is relationships that emanate out of families and the unhealthiness of families and the breakdown of relationships and the institution of the family. So let's jump into this word. It won't be long, but it's going to be substantial, I believe. So tagging on to last week, cycles of disaffection, I'm jumping into the greatest casualty in the church, which has to do with relationships. John chapter 10, verse 10. John 10, 10. 
Some of you know that by heart by now. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Right? That's what he comes for. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Why did Jesus come? So that we can have life and have that life more abundantly. So let's get into this now because I want to deal with the obstructions that block you from a healthy and a happy relationship. The obstructions, I'm going to highlight about four. In addition to what I did last week, this would be about four other elements that I didn't touch last week. Obstructions that would block you from a healthy and happy relationship. One of them is simple, everyday stress. If you're taking notes, write that down. You'll see how important this becomes. One, everyday stress. Stress is a state that arises from an imbalance between the demand and your capabilities. Stress. It comes because of an imbalance between the demand of life and your capability to meet those demands. That produces stress. You must accomplish something and you don't know how to do it and you don't possess the tools and the skills to do it, so stress begins to set in. On an average, 60% of Americans report feeling great stress at least once a week. Anybody can identify with that? <laughs> That's about everybody's hand goes up. At least once a week, six in 10 people experience some great difficulty in that given week that produces stress. We're pushing ourselves emotionally and stress is magnified sometimes and that stress begins to hurt our relationships now you can begin to see the connection with stress and relationship right who suffers the most when you have a bad time person closest to you <laughs> are you with me you don't have to lift your hand and agree with me and just go like mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you are not feeling your best, I guarantee, according to Emery Lagasse, I guarantee that the person closest to you is going to be one of the first persons to know that you're not having a good day. Mm -hmm. Stress. Everyday stress. If someone is stressed out, easily and quickly they move into anger, and then it becomes an issue that must be dealt with. So everyday stress is one of the first things that begin to break a relationship and create unhealthiness. Two, satanic assault. Do not downplay that. Satanic assault. Everyday stress, satanic assault. The path of marriage, as I just said, has been forged by God. It was the first institution that he created. 
So it was forged by God. Marriage was not a, an outcome of a civilization or a society or a culture. Marriage was created by God. I don't know how to say that so that it really rings in your head. Marriage is not an outcome of hormones or a culture or society or civilization. It's not an evolving thing due to some kind of awakening or enlightenment. Marriage was created by God. He always intended for it to be this way. He always intended for it to be a stronghold of honor, companionship, and love. Any deviation from God's plan is something that needs to be corrected. God ordained this thing. All other relationships outflow from that marriage. Now, you have to have a relationship in order to get married. Right? Yes. Don't you think? There are some cultures that that's not necessary. Man sees girl, woman sees girl, and he says, you're gonna make a good partner for my daughter, and they arrange a marriage, and they have no say in it. History and statistic and everything else shows that those are some of the most imprisoned relationships that you could ever find, because you're bound by a culture to do this, and you have no affinity to it. You just, you don't even like the person they choose for you. But you have to stay in it. I'm so glad that we are understanding and we do understand that marriage is of God. And so there's a satanic assault on the path of marriage and relationships. All relationships or all marriage is an outcome of that relationship that you forge. You, you gotta, you, you, there's not a relationship in this room that didn't start with a conversation. Hmm? There's not a relationship in this room that didn't start without a conversation. Anybody with anybody here just by looking at them like, hmm. No. There was some talk. And there was a bond. And everything seemed good. And because it seemed good to us, we took it to the next level. You know, our, our first relationship as derived from God started with a conversation anybody know what a conversation was god looked at all his created beings since he spoke everything by the word of his mouth let there be this let there be this let there be this let there be this he then looked and says let us make man that was a conversation he was speaking to his created thing let us make man he said let us make woman and then he pulled them together later on and said, the man shall be joined to the woman and for this cause a man will leave his mother and his wife and, and the two shall be joined together. That was a conversation. A conversation got you going in the first place. And for centuries after, you're still going based on that initial conversation, let us make him. So let us look at Ephesians 5.29. Okay, so first we talk about stress, everyday stress, satanic assault, we're still in that. Ephesians 5.29 For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourish it and cherish it, even as the Lord and the church. Let's move on. Ephesians 5.24-25 
Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husband in everything. Husband, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Go on to Ephesians chapter 5 again. Verse 30 through 33. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be of one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's a mystery. How do two people from different backgrounds and different walks and culture and training and nurturing, how do they become one? How, how does two people, this is a mystery. How does two people become one? How do you take somebody from this side of the city and this side and, and then you put them together and they're supposed to become one? That is a mystery. The mystery of marriage is that in Christ, you become one. In Christ, you become one. Today, the Dallas Cowboys are going to play a game, and they're probably going to win three and oh. Just, just mean, just, just have to say that. You know, that's my team. There was a time in the '90s when I lived in Dallas, and they won back-to-back -back Super Bowls. Remember that? Anybody old enough to remember those days? In the '90s, when we were king, you know, back-to-back -back Super Bowl. And as a foreigner, I didn't know a lick of football, but I taught myself football by watching it. And so I remember when Dallas was winning, I got all infused with the, the, the raucousness of the celebration. And I found myself having Dallas flags on my car and stuff, driving on the highway. And when we won the Super Bowl the first time, that was great. And when we won it the next year, the second time, now I was really beside myself. And I was going on the highway and I, my hand out the window and, we win, we win, we win. And I'm shouting, I'm excited. And then a gentle voice just began to speak, win what? You don't even know how to throw a ball. What, what did you win? <laughs> and that's the truth. I there was an art to throwing a ball and making it spin like that. And when I threw the ball, it was head over heels and just going like that, <laughs> you know. And so I'm shouting, we win, we win, we win, we win. And this voice says, what did you win? You don't even know how to kick a ball. You don't even know how to throw a ball. What did you win? And the Lord just started revealing something to me. You're claiming we win because you're in Dallas. No, listen to that. That is deep. You are claiming you won because you are in Dallas. Dallas won, but by reason of you being in Dallas, you're celebrating that you won too. This is a mystery. You are in Christ, and by virtue of him winning, you won, and the mystery is made manifest. Now you get it. You are winning because of the team you're in. 
because of the foundations that have been set up for you, you can lay claim to the mystery. The mystery. <laughs> Marriage is a mystery because you are in Christ and God ordained this. And because you are in him, you lay claims to the mystery of it. You root, you celebrate, you shout victory because of where you are positioned. Can I get a witness? Yes. That is deep. And it all came from a football thing with me and the Lord. <laughs> Bragging on something I had no relationship to, but because of where I was positioned. Oh, you gotta hear that, people. Because of where I was positioned. Are you in Christ this morning? then you reap the benefit of the mystery of the relationship that you shall be one one with the team that is one. Oh, glory hallelujah verse 33 mm -hmm. never less let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence to be all oh, respect her husband cherish her Cherish her. Cherish your relationships. Cherish your relationships. Let me break down cherish for you. Cherish. To treat with tenderness and affection. To give warmth, ease, or comfort to. To hold us dear. To embrace with affection. To foster and encourage. To treat in a manner to encourage growth by protection, aid, attendance, or supplying nourishment, to harbor, or to indulge and encourage in the mind. Cherish. Cherish means all those things. A lot of modern day marriages, as we can see on the television and all other different mediums that we connect with, is far from biblical. It's far from godly in its principles and precepts. How do we fight off this continual barrage from hell on our homes? How do we fight off this satanic onslaught on relationships? How do we fight off this onslaught? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Serve God together. Surround yourself with godly influences. Probably not reading the same way in your Bible, huh? <laughs> Ephesians 16. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Serve God together. Surround yourself with godly influences. That's the version I'm reading from. So, daily stresses, satanic assault. I wish I could spend more time with that, but that's a whole involved subject that it'll take us into. As you've been in some of my Bible studies and deliverance classes, you realize that's a very broad and big subject so I can't deal with it the way I want to deal with it this morning but you have to realize that that the thing that you do 
in any relationship which brought you together, love will be challenged because it is a part of the first institution that God made. And because of that, the enemy hates everything God has done. God created love. The enemy perverted it and created lust. And we get the two confused sometimes, love and lust. It's not the same thing. It's not even near, it's not even close. So as a result, relationships are constantly under assault, satanic assault. And the reason sometimes that are presented seem so good, except that they're not. The reasons for getting into contention and getting into fights, they seem logical at the time. But if you take a careful study of what's going on, you'll realize it's not. Because here's one of the things, this is number three, stresses, satanic assault, and number three, and this is when it begins to get weird, unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. Let me break that down for you. All right? And again, I am speaking on a broad spectrum, including marriage and any other significant relationship that you get into. These are things that affect any relationship. Unrealistic expectation. One, ever heard the story that Marriage will complete me. Yeah. Marriage will not make a broke person whole. <laughs> if you're broke, marriage ain't gonna make you whole. What's that story about? I think it was my son or one of my siblings or my nephew sent me something last week. And it's simply so this guy's talking what's the difference between finish and complete. And, uh, and he went on to highlight a story that if you took a task and you finish it, then it's complete and kind of vice versa. And everybody said, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not it. And then the guy somehow turned that into a story about marriage. And he says, this is the difference between marriage and complete. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. If you're married a good, if you're married a good woman, she'll complete you. But if you marry a bad woman, you're finished. <laughs> That's the difference between complete and finished. <laughs> uh, that was. That was. <laughs> Marriage will complete me. That's an unrealistic expectation. Marriage don't make something that's broke whole. You must be whole before you marry. If you count on marriage to make you whole and complete, that's a false expectation, right? That's an unrealistic expectation. If you having a friendship or relationship, you think, oh, I could latch on to this, this is going to make me whole. If you're broke, that's not going to make you whole. Here's another one. The knight in shining armor syndrome. The knight in, shama, the knight in shining armor syndrome. <laughs> Sometimes the other person in a relationship 
you know, will have days and spells and bouts, you know. Um, you're thinking night in Sharma, night, night in Shine Armor. The other person will never be moody or have a bad day and will always do what I want. <laughs> By your laughter, I suppose you find out that that don't work that way. <laughs> Stop, man. <laughs> He's cracking me up. <laughs> they will never be moody. They'll never have a bad, have a bad day. They'll always do what I want. Thirdly, marriage, I'll live happily ever after, and not according to Job, <laughs> according to Job chapter 14 and verse 1, man is a few days and full of trouble, <laughs> so the happily ever after is a myth, right? Love will always keep us together. I have a song for that. All you need is love, love. All you need is love. You know song? All you need is love. There's a song that goes that way. You can sing that all day long. Listen, only divine love conquers all. Only divine love conquers all. When you love in Christ, and fully involved in the mystery, you learn how to overcome those moody stuff and the other stuff that tend to throw you off track and throw you off guardrails and throw you off. And you understand that you have a commitment to God and your marriage is based on God. No one person can fulfill all of your needs. Nor will you be the ultimate supplier of that other person's needs. These are unrealistic expectations. The more you give yourself to Christ, the more you involve yourself in the things of God, the greater your value system rises to a place where you don't have to settle for just the ordinary. You don't have to get desperate. You don't have to run out of real estate. Okay? You don't have to. Here's the next one. Selfishness. Selfishness. Can anybody tell me what I talked about so far? Yeah. Everyday stress. Satanic assault. Unrealistic expectation. And now selfishness. These are the things that break relationships. They break relationships. Selfishness or sin. Either one is an element of selfishness. Sin is selfish and selfishness is selfish. It's all about I, me. I and me have become the gods of today. Hmm? Marriage was designed to be a team effort. When I used to be in, uh, involved in you know, motivational speaking, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure everybody in this room has heard it before that the word team has no I in it. And team is an acronym for together. Everybody achieves more. <laughs> that's, that's, 
that's as old as the hill. I'm sure we all have heard it. Together, everybody achieves more. That's what team stands for, whether that's true or not, or somebody just came up with it after the fact. I don't know, but it kind of makes sense. It's kind of cute, right? Marriage is a team effort. If your relationship with anybody is based and built just around I, there is a boundary between you and your spouse. Whenever relationships are built on I and me, there's a boundary and the boundaries around you. But when it's built around us, there's a boundary around us. So you got to take into consideration the other person in order to have healthy boundaries and expectations that are good and right. Take out the I and take out the me because the I and the me only creates a circle and a boundary around you, puts the other person in it, and then the boundaries around us. We good? First Peter chapter, and I was here last week, so I'm gonna visit it again. First Peter chapter three, verse seven. He's saying, why is that to be honored because of this? Likewise, you husband, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. He says, honor them because of this. Because a direct consequence of not getting your prayer answer is a direct result of not honoring. Not honoring. Hmm? If you don't honor, he says, this is a stumbling block for you. So I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 for you real quick. Likewise, he wise, be in subjection to your own husband, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. You understand what that verse says? If you marry somebody and they're not a believer per se, your living godly will lead them to become so that's a purpose. Lots of people come to Christ after they've been already married. And so when I was young and growing up and religion used to be a real, real big baseball bat. I mean, I grew up in a time when people used to tell people, that man you're married to is not a Christian, you gotta leave him. Well, we've been married for 10 years now. <laughs> it's like, he's not a, he's not a believer. Well. You're a believer, your life could win him over. And I don't, see, I'm kind of a little old and old fashioned and maybe some of that doesn't ring true in some of the younger generation, but people used to be that dogmatic. You gotta leave him, you gotta leave her, you know. I had that problem in Africa, when I was in Africa, um, men had six, seven, eight wives. And uh, that's how they live. <laughs> Culture trumps religion. Culture trumps religion. Any day, any other week, culture trumps religion. And so one of the tasks I had was to gently turn that stuff and bring it into a Christ, Christocentric, theocentric mode because you don't just walk in and tell the chief of a village, you gotta get rid of all his wife. 
He's been living that way for centuries. He's just new to Christianity. You got to turn that thing gently with the word and help them to see the truth and the light. Right? You don't just throw something out on people and tell them, you have to do this now or else. That might be your ultimate goal. But living a godly life will teach people so much more valuable and important lessons, especially there on the outside. I could talk to you all day long and it might not budge you, but if I could live that in front of you, that you will see on a daily basis. You will see me model Christianity on a daily basis in front of you. That will do more good than being dogmatic with you. So, you know, wives, relationship people, live in such a way that it will win the other person to try to live like that. While they behold your chaste conversation, coupled with fear, so what he's saying is, they're going to look at you, they're going to see it, and then they're going to want to be like it. Who's adorning? Let it not be that of outward adorning, of plaiting the hair, and of wearing of gold, and of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. Let the beauty of what's inside you come out. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. God is just simply saying, Peter is just saying, live a good life. And that would be a wonderful testimony to somebody else. Win them by the way you live. Win them by the way you live. The surest way to cause trouble in any relationship is to be prideful and to be a spoiled brat and don't want to do what the word of God says. How many of us have gotten in trouble because we didn't do what the word of God says? Just me alone. <laughs> we know what to do and we don't do it and we get in trouble and then we have to ask how did this happen to me don't be a spoiled right don't be prideful usually there's a dilemma of rights that's kind of set in you can't boss me around and then there's the I'm not moving syndrome. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> hmm? Can I get a witness? <laughs> I'm not, not me. You know you're wrong, but you would not say you're sorry. Instead, you're going to pretend like, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? You, you go into this, I don't understand please, you know. Anybody? Let's, let's, let's. <laughs> oh, no, you did. Uh. <laughs> But, but this is truth that will all cause us to transcend. You know, these are truth. This, this, this is stuff God laid on my heart. And, and, 
for two weeks I have a message on Solomon, I mean not on Solomon, on Daniel and the lion's den. And I can't bring it forth because God is telling me, you need to deal with this. You need to talk about this right now. This is what is needed. Last week I was in the same place. This is what's needed right now. And so I'm just being obedient. And for a reason, somebody might be going through something right now that really needs to hear this, you know? This, this dilemma of rights. You can't boss me wrong, and then I'm not moving. Even if you're wrong, you're not going to admit it. <laughs> Trust me. At the end of the day, this is foolish and immature. If you want to look grown and wise, this is dumb. You don't do this. There is nothing wrong with saying, yes, sorry. I talked about that last week. Talking about it again, there's nothing wrong with saying you're sorry. It will end a whole lot of strife. See, Randy got up this morning and he says, if I offended anybody, I want you to forgive me. I didn't take that lightly. Somebody needed to hear that. Somebody needed to hear that. You know? You think in all this time and all these years and all this togetherness we've had that I haven't said something totally inadvertently, not even thinking right that has offended people and they got me up in arms and like, oh dear, he said, and poor me, I don't even know what I said, but somebody interpreted it as an offense, an affront, and got me in their cross. My mother would say, he got you up in his cross. <laughs> you know what I say, Mick? Anybody understand what I just said, got me my craw? Because we raised chickens and ducks and all kinds of stuff back home. And the chicken would eat a bunch of food and it will go in a little pouch here in the neck called a craw. And it will sit there. And over time, it would migrate from the craw down into the stomach. And so my mother would say, you got me up in the craw, it's me, you're holding something. <laughs> what a wonderful woman. It makes sense in living picture now that I'm old and can understand it. A chicken got stuck in the craw. It's a little pouch that sticks here. Anybody ever notice that? Here's how I know that to be true. We kill chickens. We would raise chicken and on Sunday we would kill a chicken and we'd cook the chicken. And I was tasked with killing the chicken and cleaning the chicken. And every time I got him open, there's this big pouch right inside there and all the food he'd been eating all day long hadn't gone nowhere. It stopped right here. And we call it the craw, C-R-A-W. <laughs> huh? No, no, the gizzard is down inside here. The craw is right here, and it just keeps the stuff. Many of us have craws. <laughs> stuff coming, and we just hold it. I ain't digesting that. Mm -mm. I ain't letting that one go down. No, no, I want to hold on to that for a while. Can I get a witness? <laughs> huh? The chicken craw will teach us something this morning. You got to stop. Hold, because oftentimes, I, I promise you, I promise you, we all do it to each other. We say stuff. We're innocent of what we're saying. And oftentimes, ignorant of what we're saying. But boy, it has caused such great wound. If only we grow up enough to go to somebody and say, you know, remember last Sunday when you said to me you didn't like how I smell? That really bothered me. 
because I actually had a bath that morning. Or the day before and the day before I didn't, but that morning I had a bath. And for you to tell me I smell funny on the one day that I took a bath, that really hurt me. <laughs> it is so refreshing to go to somebody and simply say, that hurt me. It hurt me. And resolve it. It might be nothing. Or if it is something, then you will get an explanation at that time why. But to just hold it in your craw and just walk around with a pile of bitterness, morning, noon, and night that's holding you back. You can't have an active digestive system because you won't even process stuff. You just put it there and lock it up. No more. Not going. You have to tell people you're sorry. You want your husband or your wife to eat out of your hand? Learn to tell them you're sorry. It's like butter melted on a nice toast. It's good for you. It is really good for you. A simple, I'm sorry, and mean it. Because people would read through the nonsense if you're not sorry. Okay? At some point, we need to stop blaming and to admit we're part of the mess. We're part of the mess. Stop blaming and admit we're part of the mess. Give one another a clean slate and then go forward. You build up stuff, you build up stuff, you build up stuff, you build up stuff, you build up stuff. You keep in score, you keep in score, you keep in score. There comes a time when you need to give the other person a clean slate. You know what? All that stuff is nonsense. It's the past. It doesn't mean nothing. Forget it. We can go on. Give the person a clean slate. Again, this is something that younger folks may not know a whole lot about. But when I grew up and was in school, we literally had a slate board. There was a board in the front of the room and the teacher wrote on the board and wrote on the board and wrote on the board. And then it becomes populated and it's full and you can't put no more. In order to go on to the next lesson, somebody was tasked with cleaning the board. And so some of the students would get, and you clean the slate. Clean the slate start all over again give them a clean slate to start a new lesson start a new day give the person a clean slate stop holding it don't 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 keep score so this begins and causes what is known as the part of dissatisfaction unlike what i talked about last week the cycle of disaffection this is the part of the part PTH, the path of dissatisfaction. After any particular kind of hurt in a relationship, we want to minimize the hurt kind of, you know, and um, just not let it have its effect. And as a result, what we do is we guard ourselves against any future damage. Minimize hurts in order to, somebody may minimize hurt, or you may minimize hurt, but the whole thing here is that it, 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 it sets up the course of protecting yourself from any future damage. It's a process, day by day, emotion by emotion. It begins with distancing, distancing emotionally. And, and, and here, here's, a, here's something that you may not say, but something that you may act out. If I don't love deep 
I can't get hurt deep. Here, here. I raise my hand as the first victim that walked in that place that says, if I don't love you deeply, you can't hurt me deeply. Am I speaking? This is self-preservation. I'm not going to let you hurt me like that again. I'm going to build a wall and a fortress around me. And I'm going to put on my knight's armor and my helmet. And I'll be only looking through you through those tiny slats that were created for my eyes. But I'm well fortified. I got an iron shield around me, my hand, my legs, my chest, my head. And I'm inside that fortress looking through life through those slats that were cut out for my eyes. You can't hurt me no more. You can't get to me anymore. Creates a hardened heart. Folks, I'm telling you, practical living stuff. <laughs> living, living life examples, you know. I have a young son who is married and we have a young set of young couples in here. You're just starting off. You'll take this to heart. <laughs> take this to heart. This will save you, your marriage, your life and your legacy. Stop going behind this armor. Because when you feel that you can't be hurt, you can stab and pull back because you think, they can't hurt me. So you take jabs, you take jabs, you take jabs because there's a sense of, I'm behind this thing. So I'll hurt you because you are not as vulnerable as I. I am not vulnerable because of my shield of protection around me. I am preserving myself. And so I can take stabs at you with a false security of thinking that I could hurt you, but you can't hurt me. Is this being helpful to you? I will not love deeply because I don't want you to hurt me. Every time I've loved deeply, you hurt me. So self-preservation kicks in. All this is saying, all you're really saying is, I am unappreciated. And once you feel unappreciated, it turns to a feeling of I'm being used. Are you hearing me? Unappreciation produces a sense of being used. Oh, but that escalates up from being used to being abused. When you're unappreciated, you feel used and then you feel abused. Huh? Yes. Then there comes this non-existent thing. And once that non-existent thing comes in, well, you know, I have no place in this relationship. If everything is about you in a relationship, there's no need for the other person. Oh, let that one ring true. If everything is about you, there's no need for the other person. And that, my friend, is the ingredients that make a breakup. Are you hearing me? Huh? Because resentment will set in. Absolutely, resentment will set in from feeling used, abused, and unappreciated. Then you start to resent. And when you start to resent, it's the ingredient of a breakup. 
When we are unrecognized, we feel abandoned and hurt. In the law, there is this thing, and those of you who know the law will probably know what I'm talking about, called constructive abandonment. Now, you and I know the Bible quite well, and we know there are certain grounds for divorce and stuff like that. But I've noticed a recent trending, and by that I mean within the last 20 years or so, that courts are recognizing this new thing for divorce. It's called constructive abandonment. I'm glad you asked, I'll tell you what that is. Huh? Constructive abandonment is when two people are in a relationship, and you've heard it before, he treats me like I'm his roommate, or his sister, or she treats me like I'm a roommate, or my sister. Constructive abandonment allows somebody, or causes somebody in a relationship to so totally neglect somebody else that they have constructively abandoned them. They're living in the same house, but there's no relationship. And judges are now looking at that as a valid grounds for divorce. You have been constructively abandoned. Let me put it another way. If you're renting an apartment and your landlord wouldn't fix your leaking toilet or the roof that's caving in and all the kind of stuff, but he, make, he wants you to pay, pay that rent every month, pay that rent, and he's going to take you to court for not paying that rent. And you're simply saying, you have abandoned your responsibilities to take care of me in this apartment and you decide to walk out and he takes you to court you will win your case because that is constructive abandonment and the responsibility is neglected and allowed to run down and then the expectation remains the same oh i'm not gonna do for you but you need to do for me all the time you need to jump up when i say jump and stay up till i say come down you want somebody to do that. And it's not happening. That is abandonment. And abandonment is recognized in civil courts as a reason for breaking a contract. <laughs> it's so heartbreaking. It's creeping into marriages now where abandonment is seen as a legal and judicial means of filing for divorce because he abandoned me. She abandoned me. Constructive abandonment. You're not beating them with a stick over the head or, 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 or pouring hot oil in their ears during while they're sleeping or not, not, no stuff like that. No, you just... I don't even see you. It just, it just gets ordinary anymore. Can you all hear me this morning? Yes. I'm speaking from a well of experience, first-hand experience. I'm not talking to you about stuff I read out of books and stuff. I'm talking about places I've lived and mistakes I've made and things I've seen. And now I'm older and wiser. And by God, I have firmed in my heart, come what may, I'm standing my ground till death do us part. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? Wish these were lessons I learned when I was much younger, when I was full of vim and vinegar and whatever the thing it is you're filled with. Uh, I would have been a much better person a whole lot earlier on in my life. But I thank God 
that these lessons were not for naught. I now could pass it on to a younger generation and people of my generation to freshen whatever relationship you have and make it come back alive because sometimes we just take people for granted. The biggest, biggest cause of the downgrade in all marriages is just taking people for granted. The survey that was done, I think, by the Barna Group, the number one cause of broken relationships and marriages, this one thing, you take one another for granted. You think it's something else like cheating or gambling or drug abuse or... No, the number one cause for broken relationship is taking someone for granted in a relationship. Like, oh, he's going to be there. She's going to be there. That is the number one nail dead killer to any relationship. Just doing that little thing right there. That speaks volumes. But I'm abandoned. You don't need me anymore. You're someone that I used to know. I have a song for that. I'm going to pass it on to you. <laughs> You're someone that I used to know. Diana Ross. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there, there are two levels of dissatisfaction. I talked about one last week. Let me talk about this other one and then we could probably close this up. Some of the early signs of distancing that you begin to experience when you feel abandoned. Remember the constructive abandonment? When you feel useless, when you feel used and abused, then it produces distancing because I, I, I don't want you to hurt me like that. I'm not going to love that deep no more because I don't want you to hurt me that deep. So I start to hold back my love. I have to build a fortress, self-preserve, and it causes distancing. Let me show you some early, early signs of distancing. You go to work and you find so much stuff to do because you don't want to go home. Ah. Staying away from home for long, long periods for no real good godly reason except that part of the motive embedded in that is the less time I'm awake with you, the more peace I have. So if I come home late enough to where I have to just go to sleep and then early enough before I have to go to work, that minimizes time with you. Distances. Are you hearing me? I was guilty. Distancing, staying away from home. Here's another one. Involving yourself in too many problems so as to not communicate. Oh, I got to fix it. And then what's called it? Oh my goodness. You just involve in so much stuff. And it takes away the need to communicate. Here's another one. Tuning out. Tuning people out. I used to make a joke of it and say, I got high frequency deafness. Because <laughs> women always speak. <laughs> and so I have high frequency deafness. And when you go into that tone, I don't hear nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and, all, <laughs> and all the people said, Amen. <laughs> we blame women for a whole lot of stuff, don't we? They're having their own little private party over there. <laughs> but tuning people out. Tuning people out. Tuning people out. You know. Oh boy. Now I can't talk about your life, so I'm gonna talk about my life. 
I was in the midst of a conversation, except I wasn't in it. Let me say that again. I was in the midst of a conversation, me and somebody else, except I wasn't in it. And while they're talking to me, stand up. I'm, I'm like this. God, they're watching that thing on television. <laughs> Anybody caught what I just did? I tuned him out. He's talking to me, and I'm telling him, just. I ain't even in the conversation. I tuned out. I'm fixed and focused on something that I'm watching on TV. And you're talking to me. They're like, you're not there. I'm not listening. I tuned you out. Something else has grasped my attention. Like a football game. <laughs> or something like that, you know. A baseball game. Not sharing about everyday life. <laughs> I had to get used to Daniel asking me, well, how was your day? I'm like, how was my day? How was my day? How was my day? My day was good. I went to work. I came home. <laughs> we want to talk about my day. My day is confidential. I can't talk about it. Whatever. No, but not sharing in simple things like, how was your day? Use it as a connect time, a time to get into people's zone, to know what they do, what makes them tick, how they are motivated. Just tell me about your day. What, what happened today? You know, I went to work. I came home. That was my day. No. You ought to read the book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, and begin to understand the language of people in relationships. Like, a woman may want you to take her to a restaurant, and she says, you never take me anywhere. But I took you on last Friday. She's saying, please do it again, and again, and again, and again. But that's not what comes out of her mouth. What comes out of her mouth is, you never take me anywhere. All the guilty people said. <laughs> you're gonna love me for this, trust me. You good. This is valuable stuff. You know. You never this or you always, always speaking in the superlative. Always in the superlative. You never did this. Or you always say that. And you're gonna like, when last did I say that? One time? Maybe one time? But that one time turned into you always. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> Not sharing. Just just share. Just share. Pull one other side and just talk. Just sit down and talk. Just you know, there, there's such a value in just talking to somebody. Just be stupid if you have to. Talk about stupid stuff. Tell a stupid joke. I don't care. Just talk. It's your most visible, vital asset for communication. God made you this way. He gave you this thing here. And it's the most visible, vital asset for communicating with people. Learn to talk. Talk to somebody. Tell them your fears, your hope, your aspirations, things that threaten you, things that destabilize you, things that you like, things that you don't like. Just talk. 
for God's sake, take a little three by five card and write a list of things that you could talk about and hide it under your pillow and just talk about it. Just sneak it out. Oh yeah. And the next thing on the list is. <laughs> Huh? That's how you found the candy. Exactly, I was looking for my 3 by 5 card and I found candy. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm looking for my card and that don't look like my card. Oh, about this thing here, the candy in the bed. So we start to talk. <laughs> no, that's serious. Then here's this other thing as, as a result of the distancing. This also comes out. Severing simple acts of kindness. What's the simplest act of kindness that you could perform? Anybody? I give five dollars. Let me see if I have five dollars. Huh? Give that girl five dollars for me. I got one. <laughs> Simply saying thank you. Thank you is an act of kindness. I promise you a dollar. Five dollars. I only have a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I have five, but I don't want to look too hard. <laughs> I might pull out a 20 and then I'm stuck in front of everybody like, put it back or give her the 20. Put it back, give her the 20. I ain't getting caught with that this morning. I got a dollar. <laughs> I got a dollar. That is safe. I got a dollar. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody does something nice. Say thank you. That will create such a world of appreciation. It will catch your attention. Oh, wow, she said, thank you. He said, thank you for that. Oh, I'm going to do that some more. I don't want you to slip into performance orientation because you did something. They said something. They start doing stuff just to hear that. No. But be genuine and intentional about acts of kindness. Thank you. You're welcome. That tastes good. No, in the last several weeks, <laughs> I'm gonna tell on myself, I have made more macaroni pie than I have in my entire life. Yes. Right? Macaroni pie. Ma macaroni pie. Oh, it's a dish that I make with macaroni and eggs and cheese and onions and a bunch of other stuff. But when I put it together, it's the bomb. Go slap your mama, it's the bomb kind of bomb. That's not, that's, that's not my, my, huh? No, no, I bake it in the oven for 30 minutes. I'll make you all a pie. Just for saying thank you, I'll make you a pie. Uh, actually, I have some left over at the house still, right? My point is, I made my wife macaroni pie. And she just loved it. Oh, she just loved it. I know. Every, every day she comes home from work, there's macaroni pie. <laughs> she shows this deep appreciation for macaroni pie, and I'm saying, girl, you gotta quit that because you're going to, you know. <laughs> the freezer's full. Huh? The freezer's full. Yeah. But she says thank you, and she eats it, and she's like, mm, this is so good. Mm, this is so good. And I'm going like, my macaroni pie. It's my macaroni pie. <laughs> but a simple act of kindness and appreciation for something that's done, what does it do? 
No, I'm making macaroni pie at least twice a week. And I just want to put it out there. I don't eat a bowl of macaroni pie per week or two bowls, but it gets done every week. It gets eaten up every week. All right. So with the distancing and all that I said, then comes ignoring. Write these down if you need to, because I think you, you need to identify them if you're doing them or if they pop up. Ignoring. From ignoring, we do simple things like insulting. Just some smide little comments there that's supposed to dig and make you feel a little bit taken down a peg or two. Hurting. Badgering. Just badgering people. Intimidating. Oh, here's a big one. And we don't have no children in the room. Ha! Oh, she's too young to know what I'm about to say. Withholding. Yeah. I'll punish you because you ain't getting none. Withholding. Something wrong there, my dear friend. <laughs> Withholding. Using sex as a manipulative tool. You already control the purse. Now you want to control that too. But anyhow. <laughs> Withholding love and affection as a means of twisting you into behavior. You know what I'm talking about here. I'm just speaking boldly and plainly and the truth that's in a lot of people's hearts and relationship that they're too decent to speak about. And this is not indecency. This is a real life fact. People, I'm a counselor for crying out loud. I've done it for 35 years. You think I haven't heard this at least 35,000 times? A pastor, she just doesn't want to. He just doesn't want to. And it's been three months, it's been five months. Only so that behave, be a good boy now and you be a good boy now. <laughs> and maybe like, withholding love and embarrassing your partner frequently. Just embarrassing them. This is a part of distancing and this is part of the phase of dissatisfaction phase of dissatisfaction and disaffection all right the other things i told you last week so i'm not going to go over them i'll just run them through real quick from the four the, the, the horsemen of the apocalypse the four horses that run us to destruction criticism contempt defensiveness right and stonewalling I talked to you about that last week. So, let me read 1 Peter 5, 6, and 8 again, and then I'll close off there. And I'll give you a chance to ask any question. This is free therapy for the hour. <laughs> Other than that, you don't have to pay nice year, what? 
a lot of money to come and sit down and talk to me. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Here's the key, my friend. Here's the key. This is it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, remember the satanic assault that I started with? <laughs> remember the stress that I started with? That's right there in verse 7. So you see all that I talked about, I pulled it out of the scripture. Verse 7 says what? Casting all your cares. Stop stressing. Cast it on Jesus. Cast it on the Lord. Right? Verse Verse 8 talks about the satanic assault. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Well, I'm done. Any questions? Did I provoke anybody into excellence 